Father, we recognize that there's a tremendous battle going on on our, our planet. It's the battle for the minds, the hearts, the souls, uh, the lives of the people living in our world today. It's a battle of ideology. It's a battle, Father, that is bringing either freedom or bondage. Lord, I pray today as we hear your word, we recognize that we are engaged in this battle, rather we want to be or not. But Lord, I pray that we will not be indifferent or apathetic or passive, but that, Lord, we will trust you, we will honor you, we will stand up for you and with you, Father. And I pray, Lord, that in the days to come that we will have, have made an amazing impact and influence in our community, in our province, in our nation, and around our world. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. In the last story there, verse 27, Mark 11, verse 27, we'll go to chapter 12. You know, so often for Christians, consensus is next to godliness. You know, we, we really like, you know, building a sense of consensus. And, and how many know when you have people of diverse backgrounds and ideas, you're going to have to work at building a consensus to somehow live together. We know that that's, that's important. But, uh, you know, for a lot of us, we try to avoid conflict. It's like conflict at all costs. I don't want to engage in it. And some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you don't want to stick your neck out. You don't want to ruffle the waters. You don't want to, you know, and, and, and maybe it's our personalities too. How many could probably say, you know, I try to avoid conflict at all, at all possible costs. You just don't want conflict. You're, you're wired that way, and we understand that. Well, I, I like the story that Jerry Harvard, he's a professor of management science for George Washington University, and he tells the story of how he and his wife went down to visit her family, her mom and dad, and uh, so they went down to a little town called Coleman, Texas, which is about 53 miles from Abilene, and while they were down there, it's in the summertime, he's out of school, it's 106 degrees Fahrenheit, there's a dirt storm blowing, and her, her mom and dad, they happen to run the pool hall in town, and they're sitting around some tables, they're playing dominoes, and her dad stands up and he said, let's go to Abilene, you know, we'll grab a bite to eat, and, uh, and as Jerry tells the story, he goes, man, I thought that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard, you know? But I heard my wife saying, sounds great, but I won't go unless Jerry goes. And I said, I was hoping someone would invite me. I love the way we're so honest, you know. But I won't go unless mother goes. Mother says, of course I want to go. So we all jam into the 58 Buick, head down 53 miles to Abilene, where we eat possibly the worst meal you can imagine. Then we drive 53 more miles back. Nobody says anything. It takes an hour for us to kind of scrape off the dust. So I, I don't know what to say. So finally, with all the dishonesty I could muster, I said, well, wasn't that a great trip? My father-in-law swore. <laughs> I said, what do you mean by that? He said, I didn't want to go to Abilene. I was just making conversations. You guys ruined my day. I never wanted to go. My wife said, who'd want to drive, you know, 106 miles in the middle of a dust storm? And mom, she just started crying. She didn't want to go either. <laughs> Nobody wanted to go. But isn't that how it is? We don't want to ruffle the waters, you know. We don't want to create conflict, you know. So he, he entitles this the Abilene Paradox which is to avoid conflict at all costs, even when we end up not doing what we want to do, or maybe we should be doing something, but we avoid it because it's going to cost us something. You know, conflict is an inevitable part of life. We all know that that's true. And though we may acknowledge it's not the most pleasant part of life, it doesn't mean that conflict is always necessarily wrong or evil. Now, you know, I think when we're selfishly fighting for our way, that's a problem. I think when we're trying to be in control, that's a problem, you know? That, those are issues that are problematic. But there are situations in our world that are unhealthy. There are systemic problems. There are institutional problems. And what we're going to learn today is that Jesus actually initiates conflict. 
which is kind of foreign to our way of thinking. We see Jesus as the Prince of Peace, the one that gets along with everybody, but we're gonna find out he's, he's actually initiating conflict. And if I'm gonna be like Jesus, and isn't that kind of the goal of the Christian life, that when I grow up, I'm gonna be just like him? Wouldn't I also then at times be initiating conflict in my life? But we're gonna take a look at a passage of scripture that shows us what is going on and how Jesus actually initiates conflict to the point where eventually he loses his life. You know, Marshall Shelley writes, we may agree about the wrong thing. We may even remain silent to be agreeable when most people are hoping someone will have the courage to speak up and to offer a better idea. Isn't that the truth? You know, sometimes we're uncomfortable. We're in a gathering and somebody says something and we're really uncomfortable with this idea and nobody says anything. Isn't that true? And so we just all remained silent. I remember a number of years ago, uh, one of my daughters was in high school, and uh, they made a suggestion that we would raise funds for a trip, you know, by all taking turns working at the casino. You know, and everybody's, that's great. And I go, I don't like this idea. I just stand up. I don't like this idea. They all look at you like, why not? I said, I don't like the idea that we're taking advantage of other people. We're doing this at the expense of people who have an addictive problem. I said, there's a better way to raise the money, and I think it's not fair that the parents are working at the casino because you have to be 18 to work there, and these kids do nothing. I said, if they're going to go somewhere, they should be part of the fundraising activity. And eventually, we presented a different model, and eventually, the high school embraced our model and continued to perpetuate that model thereafter. Isn't that interesting? Somebody, if I hadn't said one single word, you know, they would have said, you all have to go work in the casino. I'm going, I'm not going there. You know, I'd made up my mind, you know. So I would have just wrote them a check for the, the difference. I wouldn't have gone. Why am I saying all of that? That initiated an un, unpleasant moment, you know. I don't know all the rest of these parents. I don't know where they're all coming from. You know, I don't think they were all comfortable, but then eventually some people, you know, said, yeah, I kind of agree with, you know, Paul on this, you know, and so they started moving in a new direction. Somebody stood up. Somebody had to stand up and say something. But, you know, conflict kind of raises all kinds of questions. Some of them we have difficulty answering. Often we turn to others to help us address conflict, or we may look to others for support and difficulty in times of conflict. Many questions filter through our minds regarding the idea of conflict and should Christians ever be involved in conflict? And my answer today, as you're going to see, is absolutely. It depends. It just depends on the conflict. Now, Jesus knew conflict. Jesus actually initiated the conflict. You say, what do you mean? You know, when you think about Jesus coming to earth... God's people had developed a whole system of religious expression, and some of that became very unhealthy. We saw the other day, you know, how he came into the temple on Palm Sunday, or the day after Palm Sunday, and overthrew some of the tables, and, you know, was saying this is going to be a house of prayer, not a place where you guys are making money. I mean, how many know that's creating conflict? That's shaking up the status quo. That's, you know, ruffling people's feathers. And you know why people resist change is because somebody's benefiting. Isn't that true? You know, one of the reasons why there's resistance to change is because people who are benefiting in the present situation don't want to change. And so, you know, when you're a younger person, you think, I just want to see change. And a lot of times what we do is we just run in and try to impose it on people. How many know you're going to get high degrees of resistance? When you get a little older, you realize that's not the approach to change. What you try to do is come alongside and allow people to have a part of the say and journey and make some of the process of change together. And people are more apt to make changes. But you're still going to get a measure of resistance. There's just no way around that. And so Jesus now is concerned about transforming how the people of God are going to worship him. Jesus is going to get rid of the temple. Now here they are spending all this money building this elaborate building and Jesus knows that God's presence is going to dwell within you know, his people, within us as his, as his children. He's not interested in the, the beautiful rock 
temple that's being built in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, he sees it as part of the problem and he's going to attack this. And so the final week in the life of Jesus is spent in the temple every single day. And here we have a number of high degrees of conflicted uh, communications with those in the establishment, the religious establishment, the Sanhedrin primarily. So let's take a look here at Luke chapter 11. And before we get to that, I want to just mention how Mark begins to describe what is going to happen. It says, keeping a close watch on him. Who's doing this? The Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Sanhedrin. That's the religious and political Jewish leaders who have now collaborated with the Romans. They're keeping an eye on Jesus because they feel that if Jesus has his way, you know, and if you know, the people think he's the Messiah, isn't that going to disrupt what's happening? These guys are collaborating with Rome. They're, they're living a peaceful existence with the Roman leaders. And then you have other people in the system, like the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders who are condemning or critical or legalistic and rigid and are trying to get the people to follow what they're saying. And then you have, you know, the Herodian party who are basically back to the, the Sadducees who are you know, allied with Herod and the Romans. And then you have the Zealots who are physically fighting against the Roman in guerrilla warfare. And you even have a group called the Sicarii who are knife men who walk around in crowds stabbing and assassinating people. So you have this very intense situation going on. And Jesus is in the middle of all of this and he's challenging the the existing establishment. How many know you're going to probably get in a little trouble if you start you know, challenging the existing establishment? And that's exactly what's happening. So they're keeping a close watch on them, and now they send spies who pretend to be honest. Isn't that nice? You know, everybody just wants to make an assumption. Everybody is a nice guy. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches here. These guys had an agenda. And they hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. Now, why would they want to hand him over to the governor? Because the governor was the only person that had the authority to put anybody to death. And they just really wanted to get rid of Jesus. So they were hoping he would mess up on this side of the equation so that they could come to Pilate and say, he's an insurrectionist. He is actually causing political dissent. You got to get rid of this guy. He's dangerous. But, you know, the real motivation was they felt like their position was being jeopardized. The people were embracing Jesus, and so they were now in a sense of, uh, of, of conflict with Jesus. So I want to take a look at the three questions that are now raised to entrap Jesus. And when we look at these questions, they're going to talk about certain key issues that I think apply to each one of us in our in our lives. And that's why, you know, if we're going to be like Jesus, these questions are going to come to us. And we need to be able to answer these questions. And folks, they're coming to us faster than you'll ever believe. So you better understand the ground in which you're standing. And the first uh, question here that's designed to entrap Jesus has to do with authority. In other words, who gave you the right to say and do the things you're saying and doing, Jesus? I mean, where are you getting this authority from? And so we read in Mark eleven twenty seven. they arrived in Jerusalem while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. Who gave you authority to do this? In other words, we're the political and religious leaders. We didn't give you this authority, so where are you getting this authority from? All right, and so Jesus now basically has to answer this question. And the, the idea they're trying to frame is simply this. If he says it's from God, they're going to say that's blasphemy because we're the spiritual authority. And if they say it's from men, they're going to say, you know, that's just a bunch of rebel rousers and, you know, you don't really have any authority. So Jesus, being a good Jewish rabbi, and by the way, this is a very rabbinical strategy, is you answer a question by asking a question. I mean, I think that's pretty good. I mean, Jesus does it beautifully here. And so we read, Jesus says, well, let me ask you guys a question. And if you answer my question, I'll tell you the authority, where I'm getting my authority from. And here he comes. He said, now John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? You tell me. And so now we find out that what Jesus is basically saying is, 
If it's from John, John was perceived as a prophet. John was a prophet. Jesus was baptized by John. John's authority came from God. The people believed that John was a prophet. They believed that his authority came from God. So if Jesus, if they say from John, the, John, the, you know, like they believe that John's authority came from heaven, Jesus is going to say, well, why are you doubting mine? That's where my authority comes from. You know, but if he says, if they say from men, that John had really no authority, he was just doing his own thing, they were afraid because the people didn't believe that. They believed it was from God and the mob in those cultures, by the way, we're kind of laid back when it comes to political issues. You gotta go to the, you know, the Middle East and other parts of the world where you find some real intensity. You know, these mobs will shred you. You know, you, you don't mess with them. So here, here they, so we read in the scriptures here, they, they came aside from Jesus, began to discuss it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll say, well, why didn't you believe him? If we say from men, and then you have this little parenthetical thought that says, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So in other words, they don't want to agitate and lose the goodwill of the people. So you know what they did? They, got, they gave a politically correct answer. Oh, you didn't know political correctness has been around for a long time. Well, they did. This, watch this politically correct answer. So they said to Jesus, we don't know. You know, I love the way Jesus responds. He says, hey, if you guys are going to tell me, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to answer your question. How's that? That ended that conversation. Now, why were they so upset? Why were they hung up about where Jesus was getting his authority? Well, listen to what John chapter 5 well, let me go back and say this. I like what James Edwards says. By what authority indicates for the Sanhedrin, the issue is not simply what Jesus did, but his right to do it. In other words, who's giving you the right to do what you're doing? Now, in John chapter 5, we have this amazing story, you know, where Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. And it says there, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews began to persecute him because they were, they were locked in. You could not do anything on the Sabbath, but Jesus was doing miracles, okay? And Jesus was, you know, I've, I've studied the Bible. I kept saying to myself, you know, if Jesus had not done it on the Sabbath, he would have never got these guys so upset. He purposely did it on the Sabbath because he was trying to tell them, you guys have a wrong understanding of the Sabbath, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not designed for people to serve a day. You know, the day was designed to serve the people. The day was designed for you and I to, you know, be restored, renewed, to worship. It wasn't for us to be a slave to the day, but the day was to serve us. And Jesus is over that day. Then it says here, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. By the way, that's another problem. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Oh, I tell you, Jesus did this on purpose. Remember the story of Moses comes to a bush. It's being consumed, but it's not being destroyed. Sorry, it's, it's, it's a lit with fire, and it's not being consumed. It's a burning bush, and it's not being destroyed. It's actually, the, it's actually a bush. A symbol and a sense of God. God is a fire. And God had descended on the bush, but he wasn't destroying the bush. Isn't that an amazing thought that here could, fire could come over this bush and not destroy it? Man, that's a powerful thought. We could just probably hang there for a while, but move on. So Moses, he's sitting there talking to this bush that's on fire, and he realizes this is God. And he goes, God says, I wanted you to go down to Egypt and deliver my people. Moses goes, I don't even know if they're going to believe this is happening. I mean, who do I see ascending me? In other words, by what authority am I going? And God gives his name. He says, I am, right? Now, how many notice when you're reading through the Gospel of John, you keep running into Jesus going, I am the light, I am the way, I am. He's using the name of God. No wonder these people were upset. They were thinking, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He's a human being saying he's God. And so you can understand why they were so uptight. So Jesus is pushing all of their religious buttons. You can see that. Then you read in Mark chapter 2. Uh, Jesus is not only doing that, he's forgiving sins. And we know that beautiful story, the paralyzed man, his friends lower him through the roof. He's dropped at the feet of Jesus. And then we pick up the stories. You know, Jesus says, you know what? Your sins are forgiven. And immediately, the teachers of the law that were sitting there, they're thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. 
In other words, he is talking as if he's God. Because they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? I'm not talking about the idea of you and I forgiving each other. I'm talking about the idea that, that this person has the right to say that you're no longer indebted to God for your sins. In other words, he's acting like God. He's forgiving sins here. And immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking. How many know that's a little bit unnerving? You know, I want to just say the good news. Satan does not know what you're thinking. God knows what you're thinking. Here's Jesus. He knows what they're thinking. So while they're thinking the thought, Jesus brings it up. How many think that might be a little unnerving? You're talking to somebody and you're thinking something, then pretty soon they're using that as part of the conversation. You go, I didn't say anything. You know, are you reading my mind? Yeah, Jesus could do that. He could actually know what they were thinking. He says to them, why are you thinking these things? They're thinking, what? What do you mean? What are we thinking? You know, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. In other words, Jesus said, look, I could have said to him, just go ahead and take your mat and go home. You'll be okay. But he said, I want you, I'm doing something on purpose. I'm trying to demonstrate to you, what? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. Now, this house was packed. Remember that to lower him down? Can you imagine? How many think it might be a little bit of a drama, you know? You know, somebody gets wheeled in here in a wheelchair, and it's not a set thing. You know, sometimes people can stage things. No, this person, everybody's known this person in town. They know that he's been crippled, you know, how many years? He gets wheeled up here, and all of a sudden somebody says, okay, you can walk out now. And the guy stands up, takes his wheelchair, and starts rolling it out. How many know that probably gets our attention? But that, anybody that might get your attention? Yeah, so this is getting people's attention, right? You can see why it was getting their attention. He says, well, you know, I did this to show you that I have authority to forgive sins. The Bible says this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. So you can understand why now that the leaders in Jerusalem were freaking out because Jesus was doing a whole bunch of stuff that wasn't being seen done. As a matter of fact, his behavior and what he was saying was so beyond anything that had ever seen or ever witnessed or heard by anybody in the past like they were, didn't know what to do with them. Do you know what? Here is somebody that doesn't fit your box. And don't tell me we don't have boxes. Everybody has a box. We have, you know, we have little places in our minds where people fit. And I want to just tell you right now, Jesus doesn't fit any box. He just doesn't fit any box. And it really messes with people's heads. So they were really unnerved by what he was doing. So the reason why Jesus... Uh, won't tell them was because he, he knows that they're not willing to receive him and respond to him correctly. So James Edwards says it this way, and I like it. To those unwilling to commit themselves to Jesus, he refuses to commit himself. In other words, if you and I don't commit to Christ, he won't commit to us. How many go, I want him to commit to me? Then you gotta make a decision. Will I commit to him? You see, you're not gonna get him responding until you respond. Those who cannot be honest with themselves cannot be honest about Jesus. These people were lying to themselves. There was every evidence to show that he was God, and yet they wouldn't believe it. That's very powerful. Let me move on to the second uh, entrapped, entrapping, designed to entrap Jesus. This is a question. It had to do with loyalty. This question is meant to discredit and destroy Jesus' influence among the people or to place him at odds with the Roman authorities. So Jesus now is challenged with the issue of where his loyalty should fall, between the people or the establishment. And it generates, I think, some questions in our own lives where ultimately does our allegiance in life belong? This is a huge issue, folks. This isn't just Jesus being challenged by where is he going to put his loyalty. It's, it's a question we have to answer, you know, you and I don't have authority unless we get it from God. You and I have to show loyalty in order for us to experience what God has in mind for our lives. This is a politically loaded question. In the questioner's mind, it's a no-win situation. Here, here's how they frame it in chapter 12, verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians, which, by the way, were totally uh, against each other, they always hated each other, but now 
How many know when you have a force greater than yourself, sometimes two minor forces unite? This is what's happening. So the Herodians and the Pharisees are united, and they're trying to catch Jesus in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. How many know that's, that's a true statement? Jesus is a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. How many know that's true too? So everything they're saying about Jesus right now is true. So they're saying these truthful things, these nice things, but it's really a setup. Here's the question. Is it, the, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now you can understand here's a group of people who are under an oppressed oppression of a foreign dominating power who they're paying taxes to this power who resent it the average person resents this and so they go oh by the way jesus uh, should we be paying taxes to caesar or not you know so if he says yeah we should be paying taxes to caesar he knows they know that he's going to eliminate all of his support and sympathy from the people if he says no we shouldn't be paying taxes to caesar he knows they know that they can arrest him on grounds of insurrection and have him, you know, in big time trouble with the Romans. So they've kind of set him up. How many know you never set up Jesus? So Jesus, he knows their, his Bible says, should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Remember, he does know what's going on. He says, why are you trying to trap me? He said, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And then they brought the coin and he asked, oh, by the way, I'm looking at this. Whose picture on the coin is this? How many know that if you pull out your coinage, you usually have a monarch on there? How many notice that? That's usually the way it's always been. You know, these people that are in power like to have their faces minted on coins. That's actually been a good thing because that helps, you know, archaeologists know when coins, you know, what time zone that they were in because that's who the picture is, right? So he looks at the picture. He goes, well, who's on here? They go, well, Caesar. He says, well, why don't you give to Caesar what belongs to him and give to God what belongs to him? Jesus now changes the whole thing. Jesus actually stumps them because they're listening to him and they're going, how can you argue that? And what Jesus is actually doing is teaching us a very powerful lesson. He's showing us that we have a responsibility to two worlds. For us to, have, to make a choice is too simplistic. So by taking a coin, he shows the two loyalties. We have to live in both worlds. We have a responsibility both to our country and to God. We must live responsibly with both loyalties. But then the question is asked, what happens when the loyalties are challenged? What happens when there's a conflict between the two loyalties? Does that ever happen? Well, of course it can. What happens when... Uh, loyalties collide with each other. What happens when a parent or a husband asks his or her spouse or his or her children to do something that the Bible has, specif- has commanded against? But let me just say to you this way. The people who God puts in authority, by the way, the government is something instituted of God. God gives them authority. He does that with parents. He does that with husbands. He gives authority. But let me just say this. The, the moment an authority does something that is either illegal or immoral, let's go with immoral. Let's breaking God's law, okay? They now have violated their power. They have violated their position of authority. And in that moment, in that particular instant, in that particular situation, they no longer have authority. There is a greater authority. There's a greater loyalty. As a matter of fact, isn't it interesting when you know, Jesus, in leaving the planet, he gave a command to his disciples. What did he say? Go into all the world and make disciples. You know, preaching, teaching, baptizing, right? Didn't he not command us to do that? That's the command of the church. But you know what happened when Jesus left and the disciples were doing that? The authorities didn't want them to talk like that. And we read what happened in the, in, in the book of uh, Acts when Luke, the, in, the physician who's the author, writes... Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin, which, is the, which would be like the House of Commons in, in our country, to be questioned by the high priest, the highest leader, the prime minister. He's going to ask the question. Okay? We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles, how did they respond? They said, we must obey God rather than men. And folks, this is, we're, we're moving towards something as a culture. 
We're moving to a time when people, you know, when, when, when humanity rises up, and I read it in Psalm 2, when leaders rise up and conspire against God and create laws that are no longer godly, there's going to come a day when people who love God are going to be treated as criminals and their activity will be deemed illegal and they'll end up in jail. And I've thought about this. Can you imagine if Jesus was applying for a church? He was arrested and put in jail. Paul was arrested and put in jail. Peter and John were put in jail. All these guys were put in jail. That all went part, part of the early church. These guys were all considered criminals. Do you know that? We're following criminals. And why were they criminals? Because they had a higher authority, a greater loyalty. Now, I'm not suggesting we go out and we start breaking all kinds of laws. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm saying today very clearly that when an authority breaks the law of God, they no longer have that authority from God and that we have a, high, excuse me, a higher loyalty as Christians to obey God, even though it'll cost us something. You know, I can think of a couple of people in the Bible. Remember these three Hebrew boys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You know, they were serving in Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar was a totalitarian tyrant, and uh, he made an image 90 feet high. It was an idol. He wanted everybody to worship this idol, which I think was made in his own image. So he thought of himself pretty highly, wouldn't you think? made a statue of myself 90 feet high. It's made of gold. I'm going to have everybody bow down to it and worship it. You know, these guys basically said, forget it. We're not going to do it. We're not bowing down to this idol. And the Bible says um, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar became so angry that he told these guys, you know what, heat up the furnace seven times hotter. They said, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, Daniel 3.17, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. That did not make Nebuchadnezzar happy. <clears throat> this guy had some anger issues. He became furious. You know, his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. I think that's an expression. He said, crank it up, full blast. People that were doing it got destroyed in the process. And uh, they threw him in the blazing furnace. And then these guys began to notice. There's not three guys. There's, first of all, they were thrown in, bound. So they probably, you know, bounced in. And all of a sudden, boom, they bounced up. They started walking around. And, was, and Nebuchadnezzar goes, whoa, hey, I see four of them. I only threw three in there. You know, he could actually count. That was good. <laughs> he goes, what in the world's going on? He said, bring them out. And this is the part I love. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes did not, were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire in them. How many go, that's supernatural? First of all, they should have died. First of all, they should have been crispy critters, you know, but they come out walking out of there. They didn't even smell like smoke. They were in great shape. You know, Nebuchadnezzar goes, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He probably didn't become a believer, but he was pretty impressed at the power of, of the God of the Israelites, right? Wouldn't you say that's true? God of the Jews? He was pretty impressed. And he says, matter of fact, anybody that says anything bad about that God, this is how nice he is. He says, um, he says, I'm so impressed with these guys that they were willing to defy my command and give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut in pieces, their homes be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Nice guy. <laughs> you know, don't mess with him, right? Okay, and then he elevates these guys. Now, I can't say that we're always going to have that happen. We're going to get, you know... God's going to rescue us and do that very thing. I mean, how many know that we're living in a world today that many people are laying down their lives because they're believers? And God isn't always coming down there and sparing them in this life. But we read from the book of Revelation, what's happening is that their cry, their martyrdom, their blood is rising before God. And let me tell you something. God is going to avenge the death of his saints. And when you get 160,000 martyrs every year in our world, God's paying attention to the cry. So there's a system. We need to understand. I'm not picking on people. I'm picking on a system. We have a system that is controlling the minds of people and there are certain ideas that are against God. People are conspiring against God. They're in rebellion against God. And so people who stand up for God, we are the fodder or the, the fuel that they're, they're going after. And so we have to understand something. In North America, we have lived under such an amazing 
uh, realm of time. We've been blessed. We've had you know, a, a background of Christianity that has dominated the landscape. That is no longer the case, folks. And that things are changing very rapidly. And so what I'm saying today is that we are going to experience conflict. And if we don't experience conflict, it's because we're making a compromise. You're going to have to make huge compromises in order not to have conflict. So we have to make a decision. And I'm, I'm saying very straight up today that Jesus was actually initiating the conflict with the religious establishment because they were in the wrong. And we need to understand that if we're going to be like Jesus, we'll probably be doing the same thing. We just have to do it in a gracious way. Let me move on really quickly here to point number two. It has to do with our loyalty. Uh, three. Oh, okay. I'm on to three. I'm going, wow. I'm running out of time. We just did two. has to do with orthodoxy. In other words, is there a right understanding on some issues? Is there a right and wrong perspective? Are there absolutes? We live in a culture today that says there is no absolute. Everything is relative. Does everybody understand that? That's the culture we're living. That's the mindset we have. And, and the reason why we have that as a mindset is because God is an absolute. Once you believe in God, you believe in an absolute. And once you start believing in an absolute, there's a number of elements that filter down. First of all, we believe that Jesus Christ lived on the planet. We believe absolutely that he, he was crucified. We believe absolutely that he died. We believe absolutely that he rose again from the dead. See, we're believing in certain absolutes, but our culture does not believe that. And so they've been trying to discredit the story of Jesus and his resurrection for 2,000 years without any sort of real success. Let me tell you that right now. People want to believe a lie, they believe a lie. But the truth is out there to be found and, and experienced. So, the Sadducees come up with a question challenging a biblical concept. How many know the Bible's even being challenged today? The Sadducees say there's no resurrection. And they came to Jesus with a question. And so they posed it this way, teacher... You know, there's a Levitical law that basically says a man marries a woman. If they don't have any children, his brother's supposed to marry her so they can bear his, a child in his name. So they said, you know, there was a man that this happened to, no children. Then the brother took her as his wife, no children. And this happened. There were seven brothers. They all had her as a wife, and then they all died, including the woman. Here's the question, Jesus. Whose wife is she in the resurrection? In other words, ha, ha, ha. See how crazy your idea of a resurrection is? You know what Jesus said? You guys are thinking the wrong way. You know, often when we challenge the concept of absolutes or rights and wrongs, it may be based on a wrong understanding of the purpose of God. But our challenges don't change the reality of truth and absolutes. Either the resurrection is an absolute concept or not. The Sadducees, in presenting a problem taken from the Levitical law, were trying to show the absurdity of the resurrection with their question. Jesus' answer reveals not the absurdity of the resurrection, but rather the wrong premise from which these people were presenting their arguments. Notice Jesus' answer in verse 24. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? He says, you guys are ignorant. You guys are negating something very fundamental. And he said, when the dead are raised, there's not going to be marriage. So first of all, you made an assumption that there's marriage in the afterlife. Wrong. There's none. Okay, so that took care of that problem. So you're trying to make it look stupid. But he said, let me tell you something else. Now about the dead. You guys think that, see the Sadducees were the aristocrats. They had all the money. They didn't really worry about suffering in this life. So they had a great life. They never thought there was an afterlife. Jesus says, no, there is an afterlife. Think about this. And then he quotes the scripture. He says, think about Moses again at the account of the bush. And God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus says this, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, when he said, I am the God of Abraham, Abraham was alive with God. So was Jacob, so was Isaac. Isn't that beautiful? God was basically saying, these people are living. The issue is not belief in the resurrection, as important as that is, it's even more fundamental. Do we believe the scriptures and the ability and power of God to do the supernatural? See, we're having a hard time in our culture believing in the supernatural. Yet, I think today, more so than there was even 30 years ago, more and more people are moving towards belief in the supernatural. Because now we realize you can't explain everything in the natural. You can't explain everything with science. You can't explain everything with technology. It doesn't have all the answers. 
There's still the supernatural element. But today our culture is embracing the dark side. How many kind of catch that? You cannot turn on your television, there's all this programming, and most of it is, you know, glorifying the dark side of the supernatural. How many know what I'm talking about? It's just permeating the whole, and you know, the whole culture is being permeated by this stuff, and so people who have no grid to read through these stories now begin to embrace them. And so the media, the, you know, is actually educating the majority of the culture towards the supernatural based on a false premise. That's what's going on. I don't know if we catch that. Uh, so, Jesus uh, will actually challenge even if we have right or wrong theology. This is a very amazing story. I don't know if you guys like it. Jesus is talking to a woman at the well. She's a Samaritan. He's a Jew. That shouldn't be happening. Culturally, that was unacceptable. And then the woman who had been living with her present fella, but had been divorced five times, okay, Jesus is now talking to her, and when he points out, he says, yeah, I know you've been married five times, and the guy you're with, you're not married to. And I love her response, sir, I see that you're a prophet. In other words, how do you know this stuff? You know, how are you reading my, my life like this? And um, she says, then she moves on, she becomes religious. It's really amazing. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I get it because I'm a pastor. You know, I, it's really funny. When people find out I'm a pastor, it's amazing how religious they get. <laughs> Boom. It's like right now. Yeah, my grandmother used to do this, and I went to church when I was, I mean, it's just, it's really funny. It, 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 it's kind of humorous. I, I find it, I don't say anything. I just listen. He says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. There was a controversy between the Samaritans and the Jews regarding where to worship. Now notice what Jesus says here. Wow, I just skipped over. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. How many go, that's kind of a, see today we would be going, that's not nice Jesus. You just basically told her she's ignorant. Her whole religious system is wrong. But let me ask you a question. If somebody's worshiping incorrectly, is that a healthy thing? No. You know, what you believe is going to affect how you behave. So he said, we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, the Jews are right about where to worship and what to do. But then Jesus says this, yet a time is coming and has now come because Jesus is now there and he's challenging that system. He says, listen, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. God's not interested in location. He's interested in the right, right avenue, the right heart attitude. You got to come through Christ and you got to have the right attitude. Jesus is challenging the woman's entire belief system. She is in error and her error is keeping her from the truth. Does a wrong understanding about God and truth keep people from God? Yeah, good, you can read. That's what I wrote. Absolutely. It does keep people from God. You know what Jesus said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, I want to just say this in closing. You know, Christianity is both inclusive and exclusive. What do you mean by that, Pastor? It means simply this. God says, I will, you know, save whoever will. I, I, I'm reaching out to the entire world. The gospel is for every human being. Okay? Everybody's included. But what the problem is, is you have to come through God's way. Jesus, I'm the way. I am the way. The way is through the cross. The way is through what I've accomplished for you. See, you and I can't argue with God because we're the created, he's the creator. We're the sinner, he's the one that's redeeming us from our sins. He's the one that made it possible for you and I to be set free from our sins so we can experience life. And God himself came down to earth and died for us. So for you and I to think there's another way to God when God has already made this provision is the ultimate expression of arrogance or of ignorance. Generally, it's of ignorance, but sometimes it's of arrogance. You and I need to understand this. And so Jesus himself said it. Uh, he says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter, uh, many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So already, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, here's the provision, here's the proposal, you have to take it. And if you don't, you're missing out. 
And most people will tell you, oh, there's many ways to God. Jesus says, no, there's one. I'm it. That's the end of it. Anybody can come. I'm not going to discriminate against by race or gender, age. I don't discriminate that way. God doesn't discriminate that way, right? No, he doesn't. He makes this way possible for all of us. So let me ask the question. You know, so often we despair when we don't find a positive resolution. Isn't that true? That is true in life. We're all struggle with to have resolution to conflict. Don't we feel that way? I hate it when I don't have resolution to conflict. Anybody else? I want resolution. But sometimes it's not easy to get resolution. You know, the Bible says to live at, with men, live at peace with all men as much as it is possible. Sometimes it's not possible. Jesus' confrontation with the religious establishment is a profound reminder that things aren't always as simple as we would like. And secondly, we won't always find the kind of resolution we seek. That we will find people of differing views, that we will encounter conflict, which is what is ironic about the questions posed to Jesus, the question of authority, loyalty, and orthodoxy, are questions we need to answer in relationship to Jesus. Our greatest contribution to our society begins with our loyalty to him. Step one, am I loyal to Jesus? The people who are loyal to him are going to make the greatest contributions. Right up front. Number two, orthodoxy or truth is, dis- is discovered in a relationship. It's not just a set of I believe the right things. We have to know the right person. It's about knowing Jesus. Are we willing to embrace Christ regardless of potential conflict? Who we worship and what we believe will create moments of tension at times in our lives. We have to decide, will we pay the price? And what I'm saying to you today, as we stand now, I'm going to pray for us. Let's stand. What I'm saying to you today, you know, Mark, you didn't even realize you got up here and said what you said. I I knew I was going to preach on this. You didn't know that. What I'm saying to you and I right now is simply this. Times are changing, folks. We have lived in a very favorable climate to Christianity. That time is disappearing. Did you hear what I'm saying? That time is disappearing. You and I, you know, we can, you know, today if you're a Christian, it's not a bad thing in North America. People don't take your head off. But if you're living in Syria right now, your life's in jeopardy. Isn't that true? And by the way, There's no court proceedings. They just come to your house, take your head off, and nobody's prosecuted. The whole society rejoices over that. Can you imagine that? That's a different society. That's a different cultural situation. We don't have that right now. But we are moving away from what I call a favorable climate. We're moving away from that. So as believers, we have to make some amazing decisions. We have to decide, am I going to be loyal to Christ? No matter what it costs me. I'm concerned. I am concerned about where things are in our culture today. Deeply concerned. And if we're a true follower of Jesus Christ, we have to sit down and say, okay, Lord, whatever the price, whatever the cost, we need to stand up now. You know, I think, you know, for the last 30 years, we've just kind of floated. We haven't addressed things. We don't confront things. People are afraid of offending people. Listen, don't worry about offending people. If you're a Christian, you're an offense. That's true. You are an offense to some people. The fact that you are a Christian, you're going to be discriminated against. You need to know that right up front. Put that in your mind. You and I need to make a decision. We're going to say, you know, some things are right and some things are wrong. Even though our society said there is no right and wrong. I said, no, that's not true. And we just need to be wise. We need to be gracious. We need to be humble. We need to be loving. But we need to count. We need to stand for truth. We need to stand for righteousness. We need to stand for Christ in a generation that's conspiring against him. I read it this morning. There's a conspiracy going on. But while we're fooling around wondering who shot JFK, it doesn't really matter. 
We should be more concerned about what's going on, the conspiracy that's going on right now in our world. And it's not being driven by human beings, it's driven by principalities and powers who are controlling systems that are oppressive and abusive. You and I, as citizens of this world, are also citizens of a heavenly dominion. We're citizens of God. We're citizens of the world to come. We need to stand up and be counted. We have to be willing at times to initiate conflict because we have to say, I'm not going to buy that. I'm not going to say nothing anymore. I'm going to say something. And the moment you do that, you're going to be paying a price. Some people will be turned off. And you know what? That bothers us because we're concerned more about what people think sometimes than about what God thinks. We need to ask God to forgive us. Say, Lord, help us. Help us to be more courageous. Help us to be more bold. Help us to stand up. Help us to be like you. If we have to initiate sometimes conflict to bring about resolution and change to things that are sinful and unhealthy and that are destructive, then we better be doing it. We better be doing it with the right spirit. With a lot of wisdom, a lot of love, a lot of grace. We better be searching out answers. We better be doing some research. We shouldn't be just walking around going, that's wrong. But somebody goes, why? I don't know. That's not a good answer. Do you know what I mean? We better do our homework. Right? Yes. So let's pray today and ask God to help us. I know this sermon's totally different than last week. If you were here last week, you go, wow. Yeah, but I'm just preaching through Mark. This is what happens. You get different ideas coming at you. But today I'm showing you Jesus initiated this conflict and there was a big pushback. And at the end, what did it cost Jesus? His life. And I'm saying to you, it could cost us more than we could ever imagine because we're doing the right thing, standing for Christ. So let's pray. Lord, first of all, we want to begin by asking you to forgive us where we have been quiet, we've been indifferent, we've been apathetic. We've just wanted to stay out of it. And maybe that's part of our disposition and personality, but Lord, we're Christians now and we have a power living within us that's even greater than our human disposition and personality. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will use us, Lord. Ordinary people, Lord, to have an extraordinary impact. Lord, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't want to create this conflict. It came to them. Lord, the conflict is coming to us. And I pray, Lord, in that hour of testing that we will stand. We will be true and loyal to you. We will say and do the things you want us to say and do. And Lord, help us to have an impact in our time and in our generation. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave today.